Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Friday, February 18, and today we're going to brief you on the story of Brittany Higgins. Brittany Higgins isn't the only woman who has been sexually assaulted who works or has worked in Parliament. You'll hear about the impact of her brave decision to speak out on sexual assault in just a moment. Our first, Jan Friend is here. When I say here, I mean uh, working from home. And Jan, how about your Facebook page? Did it get taken down yesterday? Well, you know what? I had a moment of stress about it. I thought that it might, but no, it hasn't got taken down, which I'm slightly offended by because maybe <laughs> that means Facebook doesn't think I'm a real journalist. I don't know. No, maybe, it, it's it's still up there. Maybe it thinks you're, you're fake news and in that case it can stay up. Well, I mean, that's an even bigger worry, isn't it? My videos are attached to SBS and The Guardian and both their pages went down. So I was a little bit worried that it would affect my videos as well, but they are still up there. Who knows? They might not be up there tomorrow, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it is um, changing very quickly and without warning. And um, yeah, this goes to our first headline this morning. Indeed it does. The PM, Scott Morrison, is hitting the phones. He is hoping that other world leaders will back Australia in its dispute with Facebook. Uh, So last night, the PM reportedly spoke to his Indian counterpart, Narendra Modi, about Facebook's decision to remove all Australian news content from its platform. He also plans to flag this with other world leaders at the G7 summit in June. And his comms minister had a video conference last week with his counterparts from France, Canada, Germany and Finland to discuss regulating social media giants. So really trying to galvanise that support there. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how those other countries respond to this because they're all facing similar challenges, you know, declining traditional media and so much of the advertising revenue going to these tech giants. Uh, In a statement posted to Facebook, Scott Morrison described the decision to quote-unquote unfriend Australia as arrogant and disappointing and he was backed up by the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Facebook was wrong. Facebook's actions were unnecessary. They were heavy-handed and they will damage its reputation here in Australia. So apparently Josh Frydenberg had a conversation with Mark Zuckerberg this week right before this happened and wasn't warned about it. So it's a hectic tactic from Facebook. Communications Minister Paul Fletcher says we won't be bullied. We certainly want Google and Facebook to stay in Australia, continue to be important parts of the digital economy here. But at the same time, if you're doing business in Australia, you need to comply with the laws made by the elected Australian parliament. And there are also fears that fake news could explode on the platform given that it's done so already, uh, but particularly once the real news has been wiped out. Obviously, we're concerned about anything that blocks legitimate sites of information. And I I understand that Facebook has unblocked some of those sites that they inadvertently blocked, such as some health sites. Yeah, that was the Federal Health Department Secretary, Dr Brendan Murphy there. The sites that he's talking about um, do relate to government health pages. Also, the Bureau of Meteorology was blocked from posting, Mm. which is very strange, as were emergency services and domestic violence support pages Mm. had a lot of their posts disappeared too. Now, a lot of those are back on, but there was really quite a lot of chaos yesterday that I mildly got caught up in myself. In response, here's what a senior uh, Facebook executive in the Asia Pacific, Simon Milner, has had to say. The way this law is framed, and it's one of the issues we've raised with the government, is that the definition of news is very broad and vague. Uh, And therefore, there may be many pages which don't think they're providing news, but under this law, they are. 
Yeah, the Shadow Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, uh, she was on Q&A last night. She said that Facebook may have signed its own death warrant. We've seen different search engines uh, come and go over the years. Once upon a time, we all had Internet Explorer, we all had MySpace. Uh, so I think it really has called into question, is this the beginning of the end of Facebook? Yeah, people have been saying that for a long time, though, haven't they, Jan, at various points? Oh, they're outraged by this or that on Facebook. I'm getting off it. But there's still 17 million users in Australia. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can compare Facebook to MySpace. I mean, you're exactly right. That's two-thirds of the country, nearly, who were signed up to Facebook. Looking for news in particular, so 40% of Australians say that they get their news specifically mm. from social media. So these are really massive numbers. And what is the alternative out there? That's the bigger question as well. Well, you know, a lot of media organisations yesterday were sort of saying, well, sign up to our app or get your news directly from us. And, you know, the good thing is that over the last few years, while they've sort of had this Facebook option to bring audiences to their sites, they have also developed these other ways of connecting directly to their audiences. So mm. potentially, you know, you look at the big, the big news organisations, they've done quite well in the digital space. You look at the ABC News app, Channel 9, Sydney Morning Herald, some of the News Corp papers... Um, they are building more direct, you know, connections. So potentially they might be able to transition and, you know, exist without Facebook. Maybe this is the catalyst they need to wean themselves off the platform. And long-awaited plans to permanently raise the job seeker rate should be announced soon. Now, the Australian newspaper is reporting that Cabinet's Budget Committee should sign off on a plan today, meaning that it could be legislated as early as next week. As far back as last October, the government indicated they had plans to increase the support, but it is officially set to go back to $40 a day at the end of March. The Australian newspaper reports that the income support could be bundled into a single streamlined package instead of several different payments when they do make this decision to up it finally. Yeah, and a new survey has found that two-thirds of Aussies working in the live music industry still won't have any work when JobKeeper wraps. Um, this is happening at the end of March. Yeah, and this comes after an open letter where the live music industry called for more support. Um, the signatories on that letter included Bernard Fanning, Midnight Oil, Missy Higgins and 3,500 other people working in live music. And they said the live music industry is still operating at 4% on pre-COVID levels. So it's been absolutely smashed and it's essentially still in lockdown. And I, th I think a lot of musicians have found it hard to watch um, sporting grand finals where stadiums are full of people while their gigs are still completely spaced out, often bundled into these little um, pig pens to watch gigs. Um, it has been a really tough time for the music industry and it continues. New texts have cast doubt on the Prime Minister's claim that no one in his office knew about an alleged rape in the Defence Minister's office in Parliament House until last Friday. Yeah, so these text messages published this morning are allegedly from a Liberal staffer who says he spoke to someone at the Prime Minister's office who was mortified about how things had been handled. It is claimed that these texts were sent back in April 2019, so that's a month after the alleged attack and days before Ms Higgins had a meeting with Defence Minister Linda Reynolds. The staffer quoted in those texts denies they knew Ms Higgins had been allegedly assaulted. They say they were just trying to help her find another job after her contract finished after the election. It's hard for a lot of people to believe that no one knew in the Prime Minister's office because the Acting Chief of Staff in Linda Reynolds' office, when this all went down, went on to work in the Prime Minister's office. Yeah, and yesterday Linda Reynolds teared up while being questioned about it in the Senate. If I could ask Mr President 
if I could have indulgence to answer this on Monday. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Um, there was an article in um, the Sydney Morning Herald today saying a number of MPs think that Linda Reynolds will end up resigning over this. So uh, it, it's just been day after day of response to this this harrowing story. And we're going to find out more about the, the broader issue of, of the treatment of women in Parliament House. Annika will join me as we look into the Brittany Higgins story. Today we're going to brief you on the Brittany Higgins story. And one of the big questions is whether her brave decision to speak out will reduce the chances of this happening to another young woman at Parliament House. Yeah, and just a warning, this topic will include discussion of sexual assault. This was my dream job. I had worked my entire life to get here. Um, I I wanted this future. I, I wanted to be a part of it for my entire sort of working life. So that's Brittany Higgins speaking out on the project in a big feature story on Monday night. Now, since that interview aired, this issue has been in the news every single day this week. The basic details of this story is that two years ago, then 24-year-old Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins was allegedly raped by a senior male colleague in the Defence Minister's office late one night. Now, to put that in context, that's just metres from where the federal cabinet sit. The senior staffer was on top of me. He was clearly almost finished. Um, Felt like it had been going on for a while or that he was almost done. He was sweaty. I couldn't get him off of me. At this point, I started crying. I told him to stop. Did he? No. The mail was fired and then Brittany was offered the chance to take the incident to police. But ultimately... She felt like it would cost her the job that she loved. I asked, so what's the process of coming back? She said, well, you wouldn't. And that was the really clarifying moment for me where I fully sort of internalised that this is a political issue. My job is on the line for this. I don't really have a choice. Just a few weeks ago, she ended up resigning and decided to tell her story. Let's find out whether that will make a difference in the treatment of women in Parliament House who might have similar issues in the future. Louise Milligan's an ABC journo who spent months investigating the toxic culture for women working at Parliament House for her Four Corners story, Inside the Canberra Bubble. Louise, thanks for joining us. Were you surprised to see this story? I wasn't surprised at all when I heard this story come out on Monday. I had been aware of it more recently But I also wasn't surprised because I know of other women who have had similar experiences in Parliament. Um, We spent several months investigating our story inside the Canberra bubble, which came out in November. After that time, I was naturally contacted by a lot of other women. And I can say that Brittany Higgins isn't the only woman who has been sexually assaulted who works or has worked in parliament but a lot of the other women that I have spoken to whether they're talking about sexual assault or sexual harassment or discrimination or bullying by older male staffers or behavior by ministers of the crown or MPs they're terrified about coming forward because even if they don't work in Parliament anymore, they rely on a system of political patronage 
to get the next job and the job after that. And it's really difficult to think about being that girl. You know, Brittany Higgins is now that girl and all power to her. She spoke so eloquently about her experience and is refusing to back down. And that is admirable and brave and we should all support her. But, you know, it's a big thing to contemplate that every time someone Googles your name, you will be associated with this. And it's a really complex issue because, you know, as women, we have been told these stories that allow us to feel somehow to blame even when we are victims of an experience with men. And it's very hard to unlearn that stuff and it's very hard to push through it. There's two things I really want to ask you um, based on your reporting about the culture of Parliament House. Now, Brittany said that while she wasn't told not to say anything, she just felt this pressure not to speak up because there was an election and, and it was her dream job. Mm. And I wondered how you think that plays in. I know it was something you sort of explored in your reporting about the power imbalance inside these offices and, and of course, how these things are ultimately dealt with. As you well know, Annika, as someone who has worked in that building, you know, there really couldn't be a more profound power imbalance Mm. than a young female staffer and a a senior male staffer or indeed an, an MP or minister. They rely on these people for their jobs. They can be hired and fired at will in a way that doesn't exist in other workplaces. They're within a party system where it's kind of like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, everyone's kind of, you have to please people, you know. Who do they go to? And this is something that was so often said to me during my research for Canberra Bubble Story and repeatedly afterwards, that there is nowhere to go. The parliamentary services, the Department of Finance has assist, you know, that they technically employ these people, but they don't really have any teeth in terms of enforcing any decisions. If a young staffer has political ambitions of her own, and I have spoken to women who were staffers who are now hoping to get seats, uh, liberal seats, they're not going to bring something like this up. You know, they've sort of had to say to themselves, suck it up, you know, let's just get on with it because it's not worth it. I really want to get a seat and, you know, I'll just have to put this behind me in whatever way I can so that I can get into Parliament. And, you know, I've been messaged even in the past day or two by women who who fit that description. I will say that these women are really impressive women. It would be fantastic if they were in government. I'm sure they would make impressive MPs and perhaps one day ministers. It saddens me to think that they have had to deal with harassment. Louise, I'm interested to hear your response to the way the Prime Minister handled this issue during the week. I think the hope is that all the pain that Brittany Higgins has gone through in in having experienced this sexual assault and I guess also the pain of speaking out actually comes to something that there's some kind of change here and the leadership of that change obviously needs to come from the top. So let's just have a listen to Scott Morrison's various responses. This is what he said 
initially on Monday in question time before the full interview was broadcast. The government has aimed to provide Miss Higgins with her agency, to provide support, to make decisions in her interests and to respect her privacy. This offer of support and assistance continues. So that's what he said initially. Um, then this is what he said the next day. Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. So along with that was an apology and he announced two inquiries, one headed by a departmental executive, uh, one headed by a WA Liberal MP. Then yesterday he announced a third inquiry that would be independent. What do you make of his handling of this? The one that really stands out for me is the, the Jenny sort of intervention It's interesting because there has been a lot of criticism of the Prime Minister for invoking, which he has on numerous other occasions, as a father of daughters kind of trope. I think in some ways there are a lot of men of perhaps older than his generation say this sort of thing in a way that is well-meaning and Certainly when I have done stories in the past about, for instance, Saxon Mullins, um, the Four Corners story, we did I Am That Girl, who was the um, woman who alleged rape in an alleyway in King's Cross and that had a terrible legal ordeal after that. A lot of older men did actually contact me and us to, to say a similar thing and they really did mean well. So I think sometimes people can be a little bit harsh in that regard. However, having said that, not only can the Prime Minister not truly empathise unless he sees it as a father of daughters, he surely should see it as a human who believes in legal processes, he had to be reminded of that fact by his wife. And what that revealed was quite a lot, I thought. And it was really disappointing and I think it also went to what I have been repeatedly told by Liberal women about the culture of the Prime Minister's office and the culture of the government under him. I have had people say to me that walking into that office is like walking into a rugby locker room. You might argue that he he didn't choose his words well or it was more of a a rhetorical question or you might question whether that really reflected something different that goes to the heart of this issue, which is changing the culture of the way women are treated in Parliament so that uh, Mm. incidents like the one we're discussing today don't happen again. Well, I I mean, I remember when I was doing the Canberra Bubble story, researching that story, you know, talking to Liberal women MPs and they would say things like, You know, you try to bring up so-called women's issues with the Prime Minister's office, you're basically just shut down and you're told we're not interested. That was Louise Milligan, ABC journalist. Annika, what are your reflections on this whole story, given you spent so much time working in Parliament House? From the outside, if you had a family member that worked at Parliament House, you can imagine why you'd be worried. You know, it, it does seem to be something that... Looks like it's rife, and I'm not going to dispute that it does happen, but there are also, you know, many happy staffers who get treated properly and and good ministers to work for. 
That's not ignoring the problem, though. There definitely is a culture within inside Parliament House, and it's not just sexual harassment. It's um, the idea that you work really hard, and, and people often work hard and play hard at Parliament House. It's a competitive, combative environment. And I think for so long, it's built up this terrible workplace culture, which it's often, you know, you'd sort of weak if you speak out against some of the treatments. Now, Brittany's case is different. This is an alleged crime. But I think the reason why sometimes things like this are allowed to happen is because of that terrible culture within the place. And a lot of that has to do with the fact it doesn't have sort of the HR department that you would see in other corporates, I guess, around Australia. And that's something that's really struck me. The way that it's structured within these offices is that there's a huge power imbalance that Louise touched on there. And I think there has to be real work go in to try and overhaul this and change generations of toxic culture. Yeah, well, the deeper question there is whether Parliament House is worse than the rest of society. And you hinted at, uh, I guess, a comparison with corporate culture there. Do you think it is worse inside Parliament than generally in corporate culture in Australia? Look, I think maybe slightly. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this doesn't happen. And we've seen allegations of, you know, um, issues within the legal profession and, and many other sort of mm. high-ranking places around that should be really above this terrible behaviour. But I think one of the problems is that whole... There's a corporate responsibility now and and HR departments are are really a big part of a lot of the private sector. There's a real messiness around who these people actually work for. Technically, they are hired by, I guess, um, on a sort of public servant level and, and they're managed by the Department of Finance, but there's also party political issues that go into it around who gets jobs. Then there's the minister who runs these offices and, and their chief of staff. And I guess there's just not clear lines. And hiring, you know, isn't done in the same way that is perhaps done in the private sector and in other public areas. So I think a lot of that plays into how we've ended up in this space. And whilst it won't overturn a lot of the culture, I think two things could fix it. Having more women in there definitely would change, I think, a lot of these issues. But also just having um, more structure and direction and clarity around where these issues go when they do come up would really help change things. All right, that is it for the briefing this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming on the journey through a crazy news week. Don't forget, though, we have the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. It will be up and ready to roll tomorrow morning. Jamila, who have you got on this week? Tom, in tomorrow's episode, I chat with... Colin Fasnidge, whose name is going to be familiar to you because he is a celebrity chef. He used to be a judge on My Kitchen Rules and most recently he was a contestant on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I've got to say, I went into this interview with a lot of preconceived notions about angry celebrity chefs (laughs) and I was really pleasantly surprised. I walked away really liking Colin and some of the insights he had around how reality TV works, about his family and about the future of the food industry in Australia post-COVID-19 were absolutely fascinating. Yeah, he's an awesome um, guy, Colin Fastenich. He has this sort of front where he, you know, is kind of gruff and sort of loves to throw a bit of drama around the kitchen, but he's actually a really interesting, cool guy. I'm looking forward to that, Jamila. Thank you so much. And thank you so much. Have a great weekend. I'll catch you on Monday. Listener.